listening to Thunder Radio, the podcast of the Manitoba First Nations Education Resource Centre. Okay, this is Thunder Radio, a podcast for the uh, Manitoba First Nations Education Resource Centre. And I'm guest hosting for Kim Kakikemic today. And I'm here with uh, Negan James Sinclair. He's uh, assistant professor at U of M right now, was the department head, Native Studies writer, editor, activist, commentator, dad. Um, thanks for coming in. Bonjour. Hello. Hey. So, a million different titles um, and stuff that you do. Do you have like a like a focus for your work, like an overall focus of what you want to achieve or what you want to accomplish? Uh, that's a great question. I, uh, uh, I started in this thing uh, planning. I want to be a writer. That was really the only thing I wanted to do. Yeah. And so uh, when I went, I was a, I'm a recovering high school teacher, meaning I, uh, I taught high school here in Winnipeg. And I kind of had plans to, I had a 40-year career just staring at me in the face, being a drama teacher, English teacher. And then what I jumped into was teaching Native Studies at a high school here in Winnipeg. And I really liked that. I found it really inspiring. Um, so that was my first kind of foray into teaching Indigenous studies and, and, our, and issues involving our people. And then, um, and then I just wanted to be a writer. I remember I was teaching high school and... Uh, there was a guy on staff, another teacher, who uh, wrote one poem in Prairie Fire. And I remember thinking to myself, if he can do it, I can do it. And I never thought I could be a writer. I never thought I was good enough. Actually, I used to send off wads of poems, terrible poems, and uh, to journals and magazines, and everything got rejected, everything. I remember getting a... Uh, a uh, pile of writing back from a magazine and they just put a sticky on the front and said we don't want this literally that's <laughs> what they they just they sent it back to me we don't want this i'm surprised they even sent it back actually <laughs> but yeah. but uh, uh i just wanted to be a writer i wanted to learn how to write and so um i read a book uh called uh, red on red uh, native american literary separatism and it was by a guy called craig womack who's a muskogee creek guy from oklahoma and uh, Cherokee, also Cherokee guy too. And so that changed my life. I remember that book, reading the intro to that book. I read it in Mondragon here in Winnipeg. And I came home and I emailed him that night and I was living in a little apartment on Corden, uh, getting ready to teach the next morning at Calvin High School. Mm -hmm. And I emailed him and he was teaching at Lethbridge. And uh, I said, I'll do anything to come work with you. I just wanna write like you. I just want to learn how to write. Mm -hmm. I just want to learn how to analyze our stories, but also commentate and say interesting things about who we are as people. And he said, uh, wait. He, got, he emailed me back that night. He said, wow. wait. Um, I'm going to Oklahoma next year. I've got a job in Oklahoma. A uh, number of emails were exchanged that night and the next day. And he said, uh, send me your writing. He liked my writing. First person ever liked my writing, mm. uh, really. Him and uh, Marvin Francis, if you remember, yeah. a Cree, Cree poet here. He used to, from Alberta, but used to, you know, be in Winnipeg here. And, uh, and he said, come to Oklahoma. Come work with me in Oklahoma. Now, in the meantime, I had to go get a degree. Uh, finish my honors degree and then go and get into the master's program at Oklahoma to work in at the time was the only Native American literary studies program where you could just it was the only program in North America where you could study indigenous literature and figure out what makes it click what makes it work hmm. there was one other one at Berkeley another one at Illinois um, at the same time but they weren't as prestigious as the one at Oklahoma 
and uh, Craig was amazing. He got me a full ride scholarship at Oklahoma. Um, didn't pay a cent to go down there. I got my American permanent residency too through the J Treaty when I was going down there. And and uh, to make a long story even longer, uh, I wa- always wanted to to write and to write about our stories. Mm-hmm. And so that's really been my career goal since then. But since uh, really since those days, I've had a lot of shiny objects kind of come in my path, and some of it's been um, doing activism, and some of it's been. Uh, course being a dad becoming a dad never planned that Mm -hmm. and um then all the media work that i do and and now administration you sort of i've decided i don't want to be an administrator for sure and but i've been doing that for the past couple years heading up the native studies program at u of m and and uh i just want to get back to what i really want to do though i feel like my career is on a restart at 41 years old so did you fall into um all the media stuff, like, because you do a ton of it. Uh, are, are they just reach out to you because of your background and, and what you've been doing over the past several years uh, in your educational background and your writing? Well, I think I come by it pretty honestly because, uh, I mean, I grew up in the kind of public eye a little bit, you know, being around my dad. So my mm-hmm. dad is Senator Marie St. Clair. Mm-hmm. And I, so I grew up um, in halls, community halls, friendship centers, um the the courtrooms like i my dad literally uh drove around the province going you know uh, as a lawyer and then as a judge Mm -hmm. and then later as the commissioner of the aboriginal justice inquiry and i came to all of that i remember the morning that uh, constable robert cross committed suicide Mm -hmm. i remember that morning and i remember uh, being there to hear the hearings and I remember the media being there. So, of course, I wasn't commentating in those days, but my dad was. Right. And having a father that's in on TV every night um, gets you to, you know, you're constantly kind of around it and you hear about it and you think about it. And so I guess I kind of fell into it because that's just the way it was. But nothing really, it wasn't really interesting to me until I don't know more. Like, I didn't really see the purpose of dealing with the mainstream. I was just focusing on... Uh, even when I was teaching high school, I was just focused on who, you know, indigenous kids, what could I do for them? And uh, at Kelvin, there was only a couple dozen. And uh, pretty mm. soon they all came to my room and we were having Bannock on Wednesdays. And, mm. and we had, I started the very first Native Studies group there. And it was just an informal kind of discussion about what's it like being a Native, Native kid at Kelvin. And um, all those kids now are doing amazing things. Like uh, Shawin Canoe just finished her, her PhD. She oh, was she in that Kelvin group. Too. Elsa, oh, yeah. Elsa Kixon, who's a mother and is now working, a, uh, has worked at NCI Radio, and um, I can just name them all. Christian, just doing an engineering degree at, uh, I can just list them all off. Yeah. They're amazing, amazing people. We did the very first Native uh, Studies kind of day, or, or Aboriginal, Aboriginal People's Day at Kelvin, which was shocking for a mostly white Right. school full of Jewish kids, you know? Oh, yeah. And uh, we blew their minds. And part of that was I brought the dead Indians in to come and give a rap show at noon hour. Oh, that's amazing. And I, I think it blew their minds. Yeah. <laughs> but but I remember Wob just being a kid, having pizza in my room. And right. I didn't really know him at all. And I just sort of, uh, I just knew Shawan sort of introduced, there's, there's my brother. and Right. And um, so anyways, uh I didn't get really involved in media at all until I don't know more. And uh, there was a, a, an editor of a small town newspaper in Morris, Manitoba, who published a uh, 
a cartoon and a mm. little editorial about saying that native people were terrorists because we were acting like terrorists in our own country right. because we were dancing in a mall. And I don't know what happened to me that day, but I just, that set me off. And for, you know, for a lot of people, they'll say there's kind of a thing that turns them, turns their career. And that for me, that was that day. Mm -hmm. And uh, I immediately took to social media, like most people do now, to to sort of express their frustration or their, their, their ideas or their reaction to that. And then I said, I don't want to stop there because um, I'd been working so much with treaty and with gift giving. Mm -hmm. And my book about Ojibwe literature is about the principles that we've always made with other peoples and peoples that we've both non-human beings were that we met and then human beings that we've met along our journey and how we create relationships often with extremely different people. And so, uh, and it, how that, that always is, is, is the word that we use to describe gift giving, which is Bagji again, or Bagajinan, uh, depending on where you stand. And Bagajinan is the idea that we set something down. You carry something and then you set it down for someone to share with. And, and so I wanted to offer him a Bagajinan. And uh, even though he was saying these racist, horrible things, and mm. I thought, you know, I could go punch him in the face and a lot of people I think thought I was going to do that six media trucks followed me out to go to his, I remember that I remember to go that to day. his work yeah um, media the media all wanted me to punch him in the face that's what they wanted to see right but I instead brought him uh, uh, Tim Horton's coffee and a yeah. donut to, because that's that's a baggage of none that, that's what you offer when you as Anishinaabe you offer a gift and so that was probably the beginning of the media frenzy for me. Mm -hmm. And since then, it's now been almost six years. And yeah. and I, f I do five to ten interviews on something a week, you know, yeah. and, and on, or an editorial or on a place. But uh, since, since I've been department head, I've, uh, I've found I've had no, very little time to do that. And that's the thing that's really had to give away. Mm-hmm. Is to, I can't do as much of that, and I got to do more of the other helping, you know, put out fires at the university. So. I want to unpack a couple of things there. First of all, is uh, your, your dad? How much has he influenced you? Was it just like being around him while he's doing that work, or how much has he directly influenced you? Because I was going to ask you, like, you were a teenager around the time when the AGI was happening. Um, yeah. So, like, what kind of influence has that had on you on your career direction? Uh, well, on one level, very profound. But on another level, um, I, I've never known anything but, so it's, I don't really know how deeply profound. So um, how, uh, on, on lots of levels, I've always wanted to not be my dad. So, so uh, I remember my dad saying to me one time, um, when are you going to go to a real job? And what he really means is, when are you going to be a lawyer? Because for him... Uh, being a lawyer, working in justice, working in policy, working in government, that's pretty much the real work. And, you know, I, I work with the, with stories and I work with analyzing stories. And, and I remember one day he said, what do you do there? You just read books all day and talk about them, right? <laughs> and, uh, and I go, well, dad, I teach and then I, I write and then I come up with theories. And, and then what do you hope is you hope you inspire other people to do the same so that mm -hmm. they... Um, that's the principle of who we are. And, and so my dad is in many levels, I've tried not to be my dad and I never wanted to go to law school. In mm -hmm. fact, I, uh, um, I encourage people to, but uh, I think if you can survive law school, you've survived the most um, 
colonial and violent experience that you can have in university is going to law school. It's, mm. it's very archaic and is built on these racist foundations. And as a lawyer, you've got to grapple with those all the time. Like, at least in literary studies, we can talk about who we are as a people. But in the justice system, you can never talk about who you are as a people. You're always dealing with the racist stuff from hundreds of years ago. Um, so my dad's been very profoundly influence, influential in other ways for me, not professionally, I'd say culturally. And so I've gone mm. to the Lodge Medewin since I've been about five. And um, I've always kind of uh, respected my dad for the work that he's done in the Lodge. Um, he's a guy that's gone through a lot in his life. Uh, when he was a kid, he wanted to be a priest. Mm. That was his dream. That was his goal. And my great-grandmother who raised him uh, kind of taught him the way you can ride both the traditional world and also the mainstream or often the Christian world. Mm -hmm. And my dad's always done a very good job with that. And I've always admired that and always tried to emulate that. And that's why I, you know, I'd say um, half my half my speaking events are for non-native communities because... Um, I've, that's what I watched growing up and so I, I've always thought I've always appreciated the way my dad can both speak to indigenous audiences and non-indigenous audiences I've always wanted to emulate that and I've tried to do that and uh, um, I've also really appreciated the way it, my dad's humor my dad's uh, the best thing my dad ever said to me I can remember um, is the greatest gift you can give to somebody is make them laugh mm -hmm. and um, that's always been I've always tried to do that my dad's always been able to find uh, uh, the brightness in situations and often the humor uh, the last thing that my dad's been very influential about is um, he his uh, ability to show kindness and empathy and compassion uh, has been something I've always didn't realize really till the past few years of my life that I've always recognized that my dad's uh, done that I can remember when I was a kid, uh, he'd do this all the time. Uh, <laughs> he'd be in the worst mood or he'd be uh, in a rush to go somewhere or he'd be busy, but he'd always help people, always. Mm. I remember it was like a minus 40 degree night uh, in Winnipeg and we were driving down Salter uh, and we were in a rush to go somewhere. My dad was like giving a speech somewhere or there was a dinner in his honor. It's right after he was appointed to the bench and there was like literally dinners in his honor every 10 minutes it seemed <laughs> and um but we were we were rushing and we were late and there were hundreds of people waiting but my dad was um driving up salter and there was an old man uh i guess he had been passed out or he slipped on the ice or whatever anyways he was quite intoxicated it was outside of a community center and my dad stopped the van literally in the middle of traffic got out and we were all wondering what the heck's going on uh and my dad helped this man into the center it took him about half an hour hmm. and he just didn't even care that those people were waiting for him but that's kind of that i've i that story is been always a way that i've tried to live my life and um yeah um so he your dad wanted you to get into law i want to talk about that dad the whole time i'm switching gears here do you feel like you've been able to create the kind of change that maybe he wanted from you to do in law through literature and words and stories? What's the power in yeah. that, in creating change? Well, you know, I, I'm privileged to work in a university, so I, I see a lot and I think a lot and I also study a lot. So one thing I study about is, is our history as Indigenous people. 
the most interesting thing to me is is uh, there's a book to be written somewhere in here i don't know if i'll ever do it but there's certainly a book to be written the first wave of people that when they when we were allowed to leave the reserve in the 1960s for the first time as indigenous people not as enfranchised indigenous people but actually indigenous people who we could go to university and um, the uh, we could do so before but we had substandard terrible education and there were so many barriers put into place but in the 1960s our first wave are almost unilaterally lawyers Ovid Meckerty, Marriott Meadmore, um, you know, Phil Fontaine, uh, Ken Young. Uh, I mean, these are people who shaped Manitoba, Indigenous Manitoba, Dave Crescene. These are all people who went to school to study law and then became the leaders in our communities. And that should tell you first off how remarkably unjust our world was because we needed advocates and legal advocates so badly. Mm. The... Um, the need was so pressing, but also the, our, our sense of responsibility was that we, our whole job was to engage colonial institutions and fight for every inch that we needed. And as a result, look at the past 50 years of our lives have been uh, a 50 year winning streak of human rights and social justice. And um, we're still way behind, of course, on all the determinants on um, uh, treaty rights, everything from treaty rights to advocating whether our duty to consult, right? I mean, we're still way behind and Canada's, I mean, Indian Act is still here. So really how far have we really come? However, every win that we've gotten is because of the brave work of indigenous people in law. And you could sort of look at that similarly in teaching, in health, in social work. I see my generation, which is not certainly a millennial generation, but it's kind of Generation X. My generation was one of the first that where we could be dreamers. And we could go back to how we really were, which is that we didn't have to be in a position of constantly reacting, but we could be proactive. My daughter's generation, I see as embodying that. You can mm -hmm. just see it on social media now. Oh, yeah. Um, people are not just reacting, although. I see the generation now as um, uh, the generation that doesn't take any crap from anyone. Mm. They're saying, no, I'm indigenous and I got no, I got no uh, worries about that. I got no insecurities about that. My generation still had that. My, uh, I can still remember telling people I was Spanish growing up. Right? Yeah, me too. Yeah. And um, I think our generation still had that struggle. But we began to see more um, because of the work of our parents who had been on the front lines of Oka and had been on the front lines of the uh, occupation at Kenora um, in 74 or the, the opposition to the white paper in the 1970s. Because of the work of our parents all the way up until the 1990s, they gave us the opportunity to dream. They opened the door for us. We stood in the doorway and our children, I see as they're now looking at the world in a way, in a totally different way than, and that's just three generations. Mm -hmm. That's remarkable. The change that that's happened in our lifetime is remarkable. And I don't think my grandfather could have seen it. My grandfather came from a very different world. My father uh, has the opportunity to see the beginning of it, but it's really us that are going to see, like you can see it every day on, in the indigenous literary world, there's a new writer coming out every week. There's a new, uh, there's a new um, poet, or there's a new TV show, or 
Uh, and so I think the, the, the question that you're asking was, um, I forgot. Oh, I, what I, I guess what we're getting at, though, is that those um, uh, people who are involved in law and professional occupations, indigenous peoples, really laid the foundation for people like you and I to be able to create the change that we're doing in, in the arts. Well, right? yeah. Oh, sorry. So the, the dreaming that I see now is making change at a faster rate than the incremental stuff that but the incremental stuff had to happen mm -hmm. we had to have the calder decision and the chicoltan decision and we had to have all of those work in law for us to be here mm -hmm. and um but like for instance um if i i worked for about a year to get the winnipeg jets to acknowledge treaty at their at their home games um it didn't take very much right and it was because of the work of people who have worked on treaty, who have worked on acknowledgement and recognition and have worked on land rights, that now, um, and you know, legal frameworks of relationships, and now the Winnipeg Jets, I just have to nudge them. Mm -hmm. But, I, but I, the reason I'm able to get in the room with them is because of all the other work I do, the writing and the speaking. and So for me, it's all a spectrum. It's like um, I'm able to get work done quicker and perhaps, um, uh, but I'm only here on a big scale, but I'm only here because of the work that mm -hmm. has been done in the 1980s and 1990s. So I'm talking about your writing a little bit. Um, well, I guess there's two areas for you in literature. There's writing and then there's really uh, editorial work, which you've been doing. And one of them has been the Dayboy series at Highwater Press. Where do you see like that work fitting into what you're trying to accomplish and where you're heading towards? Because that's an ongoing series. Do you want to talk a little bit about Dayboy? And yeah. So, uh, I mean, the Dayboy series was just my idea of giving writers I know opportunities that they otherwise were not getting at the time. So I've often wondered now in the world that we live right now in 2017 whether the series is still relevant because... Um, uh, in you know, in the world of 2011, it was still a world of uh, there was very little opportunities for Indigenous writers. You had to go fight your own way. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. you had to go into rooms and convince people that your books were important and that there was a market for them. I can remember when you first started, uh, people didn't like. I I remember actually thinking, who's going to buy that book? <laughs> who's going to buy Seven Generations? <laughs> I thought that too. And, and, and like who's like. The Helen Betty Osborne graphic novel you did, um, you had to basically make a market, which you bought it yourself, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, those are free copies, and and that's what we were doing until the nineteen ninety until two thousands, as far as I know. Uh, it was only in the two thousands we begin to sort of see an, a market that's being created, a local market here in Manitoba, and um, and you're, I think, you know, in many ways, Seven Generations was that kind of breakthrough one of those breakthrough books that are, where it, the mainstream was interested. And um, so the Deboy series was kind of my opportunity to say, well, I think there's more out there. And I know people, I know Katarika Lindsay Dam has a manuscript right now. Mm. I know that Leanne Simpson's got a, got a manuscript right now. I know that Chelsea Vowell's got a manuscript uh, soon to be happening at that time, which is in blogs. Mm. And I said, okay, so let me phone up friends of mine and say, how can we make these books happen? And uh, that's, but now I think that there's actually, 
it's pretty easy to get published. Um, that's what I think. Um, I see manuscripts all the time, especially self-publications. Mm-hmm. I see people publishing their own books or publishing, you know, with smaller presses. Or um, I get calls from Penguin now. Penguin calls me. I don't call Penguin. Mm-hmm. That's a different world mm-hmm. than it was in 2011. Mm-hmm. Uh, I couldn't imagine being in a in a room in Penguin with Penguin, and I was one last year, and it was because of Wab Canoe's book. They see a market there. Uh, Wab, they asked Wab, well, name me some writers that that would be you know out there, and and next thing you know, you're in a room in Toronto talking right. to people, right? And there's so many opportunities now with uh, books and publications. I wonder if the Deboy series is still relevant. Our our approach has been with that is to have Indigenous editors work with Indigenous public Indigenous writers, and I think that model is still important because there's not enough opportunities like that. Mm-hmm. Certainly, um, with the indigenous publishers in the country, they're constantly struggling to f- to be able to put out quality texts and uh, and to have a uh, infrastructure there to build. and And I think there still really isn't a self sustaining indigenous publisher in the country um, right. doing extremely well. There's some that are that are um, making it, but often living off grants still. And well, I think you know, Thetis is an example out of Penticton, right? Um, or Kegadons and Cape Croker. Uh, so Cattery, Echoenzi Dam, Hens, Kegadons, or Thetis out in Penticton, which is run through a number of people, but Greg Younging is in charge, I think, right now, and Jeanette Armstrong formerly. Um, I think there's always a market for that, and there's always going to be a market for Indigenous editors working uh, and, you know, formatters and everything from indexers like i remember how i've had fights with uh you know portage and maine good people um do great work with uh, that you've published i published with them but there's still battles sometimes involving things like including indigenous languages mm-hmm. or titles or uh um, covers for example or, or who's gonna where are we gonna market things where are we going to set up book tables? Where are we going to put our energy for marketing? Um, and so with Indigenous publishers, it's not that they know it all, but often you don't have to have some of those battles. Mm-hmm. And so I think there'll always be a market for Indigenous publishers. And uh, I'm encouraged by mainstream publishers, but I also, um, I if I were to give advice to any writer that goes to a big mainstream publisher is I'd say just be patient because they're going to make a lot of errors that an Indigenous publisher won't make. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's only now working for what seven eight years with, with Portage and Maine where I don't have to have arguments about um, things uh, certain things involving books and and relationships with indigenous writers or setting up infrastructure and it's because they get it now they see a purpose and they see a market um, we don't have to uh, argue about including indigenous languages in books um, yeah so I guess just like trying to focus in all the experience you've had and everything we talked about and talking about wanting to kind of uh, reset uh, in your own career. What, where do you want to be heading in terms of what you're writing right now? Like, are you working on anything right now? And has that changed your focus at all? Yeah. So I'm working on my book right now. Um, my book's, it's been overdue for a year. So it's got to be in this summer period. And it's my book uh, about Ojibwe writing, about Anishinaabe writing. And so, um, there still has yet to be published a study, an Anishinaabe study about Anishinaabe writing. 
And that shocks me because we're one of the most, uh, we've been writing, we've had writers just in English for over 250 years. Um, you know, the early sermons, for example, some of the Ojibwe writers, uh, you know, actually more like 200 years. So uh, if, if you were to just look at the Ojibwe literature, just Ojibwe literature, there's really not been an Ojibwe-specific study. There's been a number of dissertations and studies, essays and so on. Um, there's been some work by uh, Gerald Visner and there's been work by Kim Blazer but sort of a book-length study about Ojibwe literature, and I, um, I'll be one of the first to publish that. And mm. that's exciting. Yeah. There's, um, you know, because if I, I want <clears throat> a study that can look at Kakawakanabe, who is uh, uh, Peter Jones, who is an Ojibwe missionary in the 19th century, alongside Wayne Keon, an Ojibwe poet in the 1950s and 60s, and alongside Leanne Simpson, who writes uh, nonfiction today and, and some fiction. I want something that can look at the way that Anishinaabe look at writing and and uh, and think of it that way. And so that'll be coming out next year. And uh, I've got so many book ideas on the go, but then, of course, uh, all these very interesting shiny objects come in my path. One is uh, a graphic novel uh, anthology, which you're also involved in mm-hmm. with uh, Portage of Maine Press on sort of envisioning um, both Canada, but more than Canada for the past um couple hundred years of what that experience been like as an indigenous person and so I'm part of that anthology I'm also part of um, a whole bunch of different um, uh, other books that are out there so I've committed to uh, an essay on resurgence and revitalization that's coming out of Victoria so that that's I'm working on that and then uh, I'm working on an appropriation piece for your book. So there you go. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if you if you add it all up, a lot of these things are my my ideas involving pieces today are usually building on something, an idea I had 10 years ago or 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. For me, I'm a very slow developer of ideas. So things I'm working on right now, I was thinking of in 20, 2007, 2005, 2003. Mm-hmm. And probably things I'm thinking about now I'll be working on in 2027. Yeah. Are you are you more interested in like nonfiction than fiction? It sounds like that's more of the work that you're you're working on right now. Yeah. But Um, I feel like there's like a almost like a blurred line between the two now. I don't think there's much difference between fiction and nonfiction, to be honest. uh, Well, if you've studied nonfiction and fiction, you'd say. Uh, there never has been any any difference between right. the two because fiction's always full of reality and Absolutely. and nonfiction is full of fiction. Like you've always exaggerating uh, mm-hmm. who you are, seeing yourself in a funny way or whatever. So uh, yeah, there's never really been a a, a, diff- a definite line. And what I tell my students is in Manitowabo, which is the anthology I did of Manitoba Indigenous writing. Mm-hmm. For me, that's all one literary tradition. That's that's an in, that's an indigenous literary experience of Manitoba, and whether it be Louis Riel's speeches or letters, way back in the day, or whether it be um, the songs uh, of uh, Wab Canoe, or whether it be the the poetry or the novels of Beatrice Moussonier or whatever. For me, that's all one one way you can look at storytelling and our traditions and. Whether we tell us we sing a song in the lodge, or whether we're telling a story between a, um, a mother and a daughter, 
these are all things that are interrelated and they have similar principles within it. They're not the same, obviously, but they're our, our principles of literary traditions are what makes us really the best parts of who we are as Indigenous people. Yeah. Do you think that's making a difference in with non-Indigenous Canadians, like having all this work out there uh, right now? Yeah. I feel like I feel like, like I see that, and I, I wonder what your take in, is on that because I feel like. Canadians in general are very interested in, in really knowing. And, and now that we have, are pushing out more materials, I feel like there's an appetite for that. And I feel like it is making a difference. I want to know what you think. Yeah. Well, I, my position is, is that Canadians are experiencing a tremendous amount of trauma. And if you look at all the symptoms of trauma, um, it's everything from depression to lashing out, to um, defensiveness are symptoms of trauma. That's what, when people experience an emotionally traumatic event, and for me, waking up from 150 years from the story that you've been told about Canada as being this syrupy sweetness uh, flag mm -hmm. uh, involving the merits of genocidal maniacs from the 19th century, uh, hell-bent on killing every single Native family, community, and nation they came upon. Discovering that, that, that that's, the tr that's the story, or that's the story that you haven't been told, mm -hmm. or that you've only been told one part of the, you know, one inch of the flag, not the whole flag, yeah, I think it's traumatic. Mm -hmm. And so for me, every story we tell, every song we sing, every uh, piece that we publish whether it be in a newspaper or a novel or whether we continue our traditions in the oral tradition, um, changes that narrative, exposes Canadians to a, a narrative that broadens their perspective of who they are as much as we express who we are. And so, and that's traumatic, that's hard. Mm -hmm. And so we shouldn't be surprised when people freak out and um, lash out sometimes and, um, and start running an appropriation prize in a national media. Um, because for me, those are very, these are people who have been taught to be deluded. They're not inherently deluded. Right. And so um, that's the kind of uh, impact I think our stories are making. But at the same time, we, uh, we don't, we're not defined by non-Indigenous people. We tell our stories not for them. We tell our stories because we are who we are. And we tell our stories to grow who we are as a people. And so uh, every story we tell is also a moment of resurgence and revitalization, a remaking of ourselves. We're all constantly remaking ourselves as we are. The Anishinaabe means, one of the translations is the spontaneous people. And spontaneity comes always with cause, right? There's always a purpose. And so, so when you're remaking yourself, um, you're telling that story. Mm. That's, what the, that's what remakes it. That's what... Uh, remakes other people. It's like a constant series of remakings and our stories do that and that's the awesome thing about who we are is, is that we've never stopped that like whether it be during the times of the Indian Act or during the time of residential school or whether it be the early era of the Begaud Commission in the 1840s. We were always f telling people who we were. So whether they were listening or whether they were reading or whether they were literate or not to understand us. For, because for me Canadians are illiterate we're, we're the ones who are literate. It's Canadians who are illiterate to understanding who we are and who they are. And they're only now waking up to that. 
and it's not easy. You yeah. got to work with them. But an effect of all that is generating awareness in Canadians. Like we, maybe that's not the purpose of why we tell stories. We we tell stories to tell them. But an effect of that is to educate the general public on uh, history and also contemporary issues. How reconciliation happens is a difficult question to answer. But I, I wonder. I guess what my last question would be was. Uh, what does it mean to you? Recon what does reconciliation mean to you? And, and what, what role do books play in reconciliation? Yeah, so, I mean, I lecture around the country about this, and I particularly talk to teachers and students about reconciliation. And the first thing I always say is, if you don't know what reconciliation is for you, then there's no way you can talk about it in terms of a government or you can't talk about it in terms of um, a school. You certainly can't talk about it in terms of curriculum. Uh, reconciliation you have to figure out what it is for you and everyone's going to be at a different level everyone's going to be at a different position because we all look at the tree differently um, nobody can ever see all of the tree you can only see a part of it and so reconciliation is just what does it mean for you today and it likely has something to do with relationships uh, it may not always but likely has something to do with your relationships not always with indigenous people because reconciliation, if it only involves Indigenous people and non-Indigenous people, uh, really doesn't matter if we have nothing to breathe or we have nothing to eat or we can't drink the water. Uh, so the land has to be able to play a part. Our animal relations have to play a part. Um, our um, love has to play a part. The way we see our bodies has to play a part. All of these things come into a sense of reconciliation. So all of us, we need everyone working in all directions. We need transgender, two-spirit people working in the area of reconciliation that they're most interested in. We need uh, young boys, three years old, like uh, the guy who's involved with my life, thinking about reconciliation. We need elders thinking about reconciliation. And if everyone comes up with their own definition of what it means, then we have a, a movement mm. and from that and that's what books that's where books come in because i think um, more books the more books the better the more writing the better the more stories the better um, not all of our stories belong in books and not all of our stories songs belong on cds you know um, we all need to be telling our versions of who we are our stories of our experiences our songs about our nations in an inclusive respectful way that not steps on others but also joins the conversation about reconciliation um, promotes relationships doesn't end them uh, creates more life or what you know Minoba Madzuin is the way that we see life right and that's the goal of life more life is begat from other other life we don't create more life by ending life so the best life is when the most life is created. So uh, that for me is reconciliation. Reconciliation has to be something that builds life, that creates more life. It's not creating money. It's not creating power. And it's certainly not creating more hydroelectric dams. <laughs> it's a life in which as many people and non-human beings, our relatives, which really matter, our human beings... Our human lives are important, but are certainly not at the apex. We're only one part of a chain of, of a network. And our life is better when everyone else is better around us. When the bears are healthy, when the water is healthy, when the air is healthy. 
that's that's what reconciliation will look like. Hmm. Nigan, thanks for coming in today. Miigwech. Thank you very much.